0: Hey everybody! Welcome to Artist Soapbox. Artist Soapbox is a podcast featuring Triangle Area artists talking about their work, their plans, their manifestos. I am your host, Tamara Cassane. Twenty nineteen has been a year long celebration honoring Durham, North Carolina's one hundred fiftieth anniversary. Artist Soapbox received a grant from Durham 150 in support of the City of Durham's sesquicentennial commemoration. This episode is one of three Durham 150 artist spotlights, in which I interview a few of the many brilliant artists living here. I love this city, and if you've spent any time in Durham, you know that we are spoiled for choice when it comes to the multitude of amazing creatives making art here. Happy birthday, Durham. Thank you, Durham Artists. Thank you for the grant, Durham 150. And listeners, don't forget to support local artists and help them and your community thrive. In this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with Ed Hunt and Jeff Storer, the co-founders of Man Bites Dog Theatre Company a professional company founded in 1987, dedicated to world and regional premieres of contemporary work. In addition to being co-founder and artistic director of Man Bites Dog Theater and the Man Bites Dog Theater Fund, Jeff Storer is co-author of Indecent Materials, which opened the 1990 season at Joseph Papp's New York Shakespeare Festival and has co-authored Tune for Tommy, Hotline, and an adaptation of Alan Gerganis' Plays Well with Others. Jeff has directed over 150 full-length works since 1975 in New York City, Portland, Oregon, Boston, Winter Park, Florida, and Dallas. He is currently a full professor of the practice and former chairman in the Department of Theatre Studies at Duke University, where he has taught since 1982. Ed Hunt has served as managing director and co-artistic director of Man Bites Dog since its beginnings in 1987. Ed grew up in Newburn, North Carolina, and saw his first Broadway plays at the age of 16 on a 1963 trip to New York with his father. Since 1984, he has lived in Durham, North Carolina with his partner, Jeff Storer, whom he married in 2013 after an extended courtship. On a personal note... Man Bites Dog Theater, Jeff, Ed, and the rest of the Man Bites family have had a profound and lasting impact on my life, personally and professionally, and I know there are scores of other Triangle Theater makers who can say the same. I'm so lucky to have known Jeff and Ed for a while. (laughs) I was actually one of Jeff's students at Duke way back in the 90s, and his teaching and directing are still reference points for me today. Through the early 2000s, Both Hands Theatre Company, a company that I co-founded with Cheryl Shambley, performed our unconventional work at Man Bites Dog multiple times. I was thrilled to be on stage at Man Bites Dog many times for the last 15 years, including during both of my pregnancies and in the final season at the Foster Street location. And I won't even get into the performances that I witnessed as an audience member that still affect me so deeply today. Despite the fact that I talk a lot on this podcast and that I'm talking a lot now, I don't have quite the right words to put around the gratitude that I feel, that I felt for this place and the people and the space and the community of artists and audience members. Jeff talks about the ephemeral nature of theater. You'll hear that referenced during our conversation. It's interesting to me that something so ephemeral can have such a lasting impact. And I'm really grateful for that. In our conversation today, Ed Hunt and Jeff Storer talk about the past, present, and the future. They touch on the beginnings and the growth of Man Bites Dog Theater, as well as the transition to the Man Bites Dog Theater Fund. With the closing and selling of the Foster Street location in 2018, Man Bites Dog transitioned into serving as a funding and support agency for theater companies and artists in the Triangle region. That is a magnificent gift to our community. I'll put links in the show notes to other Artist Soapbox episodes that touch on Man Bites Dog, so go back and give them a listen. And now, before we begin, I'd like to read an excerpt from The Five-Point Star, written by Kate Dobbs-Ariel. Man Bites Dog Theater. That bold upstart. That instigator, that model of theatrical activism. The mature presenter of new theater for the thinking class. A support system for independent art theater in Durham and the Triangle. One felt an open welcome in the rooms, even in the early itinerant years. But in the theater's 20 years in its own space on Foster Street... It has become an important physical spot in the urban intellectual fabric, a nexus of art and politics, a crossroads of thought and emotion, and a haven for those who care about such things. Enjoy the episode. Jeff and Ed, thank you so much for being here.
1: It's good to be here. That's very good.
0: I'm so excited to have a conversation with you on Mike. We've known each other for a while. I was thinking this morning about the things that we want to become when we, when we grow up, and I know these are questions that uh, we're always answering throughout our lives. I'm still answering it myself. But I was wondering, when you were young children, did you ever imagine that you might be theater makers for life or open a theater company? What did you want to be when you were little kids?
1: Well, um, I was bullied a little bit as a child, more than just a little bit.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, by the time I hit junior high school, theater, I, I encountered theater and, and it became a place where I could, I felt like I could excel. And that I could uh, make a contribution to, and 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 so it helped me find a place, mm-hmm. and so it has been a part of my life since probably um, you know seventh or eighth grade, uh, and it, it went straight through. I mean, mm-hmm. I did it all through high school, and then went, uh, 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 which was a bachelor's and two masters, and then on to teaching and professional work. So mm-hmm. it's been kind of straight through for me.
0: It was pretty clear to you.
1: Uh, it was because it was a safe space yeah. for me as a person, um, and uh, it and as opposed to how other people may excel in music or in sports, I found that I could excel in this, and so it, it allowed me to uh, uh, give myself an identity.
0: What about you, Ed?
2: I didn't really imprint on theater early. Uh, It was more movies for me, so that was kind of where I was, and I just didn't encounter it that much growing up, although one of my very earliest memories, I must have been four, is my brother and a friend of his were going to do a backyard circus for the parents and the friends, and to keep me from wandering into the middle of their stunts and performance, which I don't remember at all. (laughs) I got to be the one over by the popcorn and the refreshments and <laughs> got that. So I guess that was imprinting me as being a house manager. <laughs> and then after that, there was, um, my father in the thirties had gone to New York, um, uh, worked as a bellboy in the New Yorker hotel, uh, was very much, you know, fascinated by the showbiz stuff that was going on there. So in the early 60s, 63, he had this plan to take the family for a trip to New York, which we'd never been to, and to see some shows, to go to the New Yorker Hotel, to you know visit the neighborhoods he'd been in. Uh, my mother got ill and my brother was looking for an excuse not to go. So it was just my father and myself. when We went up. And during that few days, this was like December of 63. It was like Few days before Christmas, I remember uh, we went and saw some Broadway shows. I mm-hmm. think just randomly selected, which were all of them pretty much with the original cast. Were Who's Afraid of Virginia Wolf? A funny thing happened on the way to the Forum and Beyond the Fringe. Wow! Mm-hmm. So that was my first introduction to Broadway professional theater. I didn't see another Broadway show for decades. Mm and very little other theater. So uh, Jeff is the one who really pulled me into it. When we met just the idea that there was an entryway for me there. And then I was able to say, Oh, I don't know anything about this. I've never been trained, but there's stuff I can figure out. Mm -hmm. So, especially when we started the theater, that was kind of how I got into
1: it. And fortunately the stuff that he could figure out was the stuff that I had no idea how to do.
2: Right.
0: right. (laughs) So
1: it, it, uh, it it worked out that way, and of course we didn't start right off with the theater, but we did do some writing projects together, mm-hmm. and things that I was not really great at. He was much more patient and and much better at, um, and I knew more about. Theater mm-hmm. and and what I was what we were trying to do, but um, but we had a couple of plays early on in uh, Sheboygan, Wisconsin, at the John Michael Kohler Art Center that we uh, had actually mounted that we had collaborated on writing wise.
0: Oh, cool! I didn't know that. And that was
2: probably our first project. Yes, the first one we can talk about. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> right.
0: Was that in the eighties then?
2: Uh,
1: yes. Yes. Yeah. 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 Okay we met in 84
0: in 84
1: we've been together 35 years
0: <laughs> love it so so that was in 84 and then in 87 you're in North Carolina and you decide to start a theater company which is man bites dog theater talk to me about that how how was that decision made
2: Jeff had been working at duke i think the Second year we were together in the spring of '85. He had gone up to New York for I can't remember if it was a it was a project that we we'd mounted at
1: Circle in uh, at at uh, Circle Rep. Circle Rep. Yeah, he had been taking a
2: um, uh, seminar with uh, Marshall Mason, Marshall Mason, and Lanford Wilson. So mm-hmm. he was staying up there for a time. I went up to visit. And he was able to get tickets for a preview performance of Larry Kramer's The Normal Heart, which we'd heard a little bit of buzz about, didn't quite know what it was, which was at the public theater and was about to open within a week, I think, of when we saw it. Mm -hmm. That was a major moment for both of us in terms of how we saw theater. The idea that this play, which was about – the beginnings of the AIDS epidemic in New York City and was about the silence that that was met with, Mm -hmm. that this crisis, this humanitarian crisis, this crisis of life and death was not being addressed by newspapers, by broadcast media, by politicians, by uh, churches nobody was saying anything because Mm -hmm. it was an embarrassing subject for them and people were dying. And Larry Kramer, bless his cantankerous heart, said that was bullshit and just plowed ahead with this amazing play, which when we saw it, it was immediately obvious this was going to be A game-changer in terms of addressing the issue Mm -hmm. because once that opened there was no way to pretend there was no problem that nothing was going on so just having seen that we walked home afterwards and just talked about the power of that about the ability of theater at the right time at the right moment with the right artist uh, with the right collaboration could make an actual difference in the world. And Larry Kramer certainly did. There's an expression, there's a saying in Jewish culture that if you save one life, you've saved the universe. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how many untold thousands of lives he saved, but he very well could have saved Mm ours because This was the early to mid-80s. The AIDS epidemic was ramping up like crazy. We were both sexually active gay men. So part of the conversation going back was we've been sort of treating this like it can't be a major problem because nobody's saying anything about it. Well, somebody just said it to us, and we need to take that in and base our behavior on that. In our case, certainly, and God knows how many other people. So that's a slow way of getting to the point of a couple of years later, Jeff was looking for projects to do. You had separated from Duke for a while. You eventually came back. And one of the things we said was, well, we could put on a play. (laughs) And the normal heart seemed suddenly the totally obvious thing to do. It had not been done in North Carolina. It was at a time when Durham, North Carolina, when the Triangle, when North Carolina itself was not much further along than you know the national conversation had been in 85. Right. Uh, the News Observer, for example, totally avoided the subject as much as possible. Their editor at the time, Claude Sitton, did not want to address issues of homosexuality or anything like that. He was very much in the mindset of this is a family newspaper and Mm. we can't discuss that. So it just seemed obvious. Oh, okay. We have that. We have the national AIDS hotline based in research triangle park. This is an amazing play. What's to stop us. We have a good director. Mm -hmm. We have a naivete that <laughs> we, have, we don't know what
0: we're getting into, right? <laughs> we have right? <laughs> no idea what
2: we're going into. What if we do that play? And it immediately became obvious well, if we're going to go to the trouble of doing that play, we should do like a little season so people take us seriously. So let's find two or three plays and figure out what they are, figure out where we're going to do them, figure out how we're going to pay for them. We'll figure that out. Mm. Let's just do this. So that was the inception of the company. Uh, there was no market research. The market research was to find a way and a place to put the play up and see if anybody came to see
0: it. And how did people respond? Because as you mentioned, I mean, North Carolina is not generally thought of as a, as a very progressive and liberal place. We have a mixed history. And I'm sure there was some resistance nationally, but certainly locally. So how did people respond when this play went up? Well,
2: remember, we were living in Durham, North Carolina, which God bless Chapel Hill, but Chapel Hill is not the most progressive community in North Carolina. I would argue that Durham is and certainly was at that time. So There was an audience out there. We had structured the season to start with a calling card that basically said, you haven't seen anything like us before. So we did 70 scenes of Halloween, which is a deconstructed play that has 70 scenes of this couple at home on Halloween, ranging from realistic to surrealistic to just bonkers stuff going on. Mm -hmm. We were allowed by the playwright in the script to do in any order we wanted to create the message. So that was something nobody had seen. That was a play that played with structure and form. Mm-hmm. Uh, we decided we wanted to do that one. We were big fans of William Master Simone, whose play, The Wool Gatherer, Jeff had used in class when he was teaching and was a playwright and a play that was not being done in the triangle. And we said, that's a play we'd like to see. Nobody's doing it. That would be perfect kind of play for us to do. Mm -hmm. But the whole thing was to build this season and to conclude the season with the normal heart. I think part of our thinking was Uh maybe that, okay, we can build an audience over the course of a few months and by the time we get to the normal heart people will sort of be aware we're here
1: and that began to define then the kind of dramaturgy that we followed um, the way we looked at plays mm-hmm. we knew we wanted to do new plays we wanted to do plays that wouldn't otherwise get done in durham and actually what ed's described is has remained our form basically for the last uh, 31 years uh, and that is that we uh, are, are interested in plays that are non-traditional in form, like the work that your company did. Mm-hmm. We were interested in this movement towards realism being sort of pushed into magic realism, into but 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 it started with a realistic base, but then it would be somehow imagined with mm-hmm. a larger sort of what if. The swan was another example of a of a play where an actor was anthropomorphized as a swan on stage. Mm-hmm. And then the normal heart had already Basically defined an area of work in terms of political and social issues that we wanted to be open to. And we knew that there was always a current theater reflects the society that it serves. Mm-hmm. That's something I'd been taught since I began to study. And um, we so we had to have an, uh, an open for that reflection of society. Mm -hmm. And these kind of plays, new plays like this, weren't being done here. So it felt like it was a niche
2: that we could call our own. I would say some of this was being done. I mean, there were other theaters going in the area, some of which are still around, some of them, like all theaters, no longer including us. And they were doing an interesting range of theater considering, you know, where we were and the size of the communities. But we felt like, okay, we see you're doing these playwrights and we're familiar with them, but what about playwrights nobody's heard of? Mm. So we felt like there were plays we wanted to see that weren't being done. So there's a whole spectrum out there. If other people are already doing this, if other people are already doing Pinter Mm
3: -hmm.
2: and are doing Sam Shepard, Then what's next after that? Let's, let's jump ahead of the line and see what interesting things we can find. And
1: in the 80s, I mean, you were aware of this because you were were a part of it in the time, I'm sure, that you spent in Chicago. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was a whole echelon in those major cities of the big, big commercial stuff, but then there was a very, very healthy off-loop or off-Broadway scene going on. What happened is it just stopped at the boundaries of New York City or stopped at the boundaries of Chicago. Mm -hmm. It was theaters that I think will someday be looked at as its own sort of wave of theaters, like ours, some queer theaters that began to say, wait a minute, that off-Broadway thing, that off-loop thing that's happening in Chicago and New York is the stuff that is interesting. It is the stuff that's not getting here. Those are the playwrights, Mm -hmm. uh, like Lucas Hanath, who just, you know, was nominated for a, a Tony Award. I mean, he's a very, very off- off-Broadway start to things. Uh, So it's uh, those were the plays and the playwrights that were going to be of the future. And why shouldn't Durham have that? Right. That was the kick. You know, you had over a million people here with this whole Research Triangle Park area, the Triangle area. Why shouldn't we have a place where new voices, new companies, new uh, performance artists like Tim Miller... Why shouldn't Durham have something that was able to to accommodate those voices in the conversation?
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So it, it seemed to make logical sense that that would be a niche that would make sense for us to go into.
0: For some reason, I thought that The Normal Heart was the first production of your season, but it sounds like you built to that over the course of the season. So when you got... To the end of that season, you had pretty clearly planted your flag. This is what we're about. These are the types of plays that we're interested in engaging with. At that point, what were your hopes and plans for what came next?
1: Well, we were shocked. Downtown at that point had no one in it. It was a ghost town. And the fact that we had actually, by the time we got to Normal Heart, begun to draw audiences downtown was, I think, a kind of a major thing because we immediately lost the rental deal that we had right. <laughs> for paying $500 for a storefront in downtown on Main Street. Right. Um, and so we became vagabond and we had to decide whether we wanted to do that. The next step was a space that we got in the DC May building. But on opening night of Hunting Cockroaches, which was the name of the play for the opening of our second season, we got shut down by the city because we hadn't we didn't know enough to have been checked out code-wise and things I... like that. I mean, we were so naive. So we had a production which we had rehearsed for 5 weeks set Everything, which we had to sort of put in storage until we could find a place (laughs) to put it. So we spent a great deal of time during that next 10 years bouncing around. But I think the decision to go on was also based on on something journalistic. And that is that at that time, a play done in a storefront in downtown Durham, could have at least five newspapers Mm -hmm. send somebody out and review it. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden, I realized that we were a part of that conversation. By doing the work, the conversation was going beyond the actual presence of the theater, but actually going into um, general mainstream conversation.
3: Right.
1: And there was a different feel, I think, at that point- Certainly, than there is online. I mean, I guess we, I guess we have accommodated for that um, on online. I mean, podcasts like this mm-hmm. certainly, uh, lots of online reviewers and things like that. So the voices are out there, but somehow it was seeing it in print. And having it distributed around the triangle that we were here and we were doing this stuff. We Mm -hmm. were doing this kind of stuff. We were talking about AIDS. And uh, if you want to join in the conversation, there's a talk back after the show next Wednesday. Uh, Pat Doherty had done a sculpture in the window of the um, theater uh, area. And uh, we just tried to challenge the audiences to uh, come in.
0: Mm -hmm. It felt like news. In a different way, I think. I mean, people engaged with it as though it was, you know, like news with a capital letter, news, as opposed to just one more thing kind of streaming across our computer screen, which I think is how we interact with the world these days. There's so much and... I mean, we felt, Cheryl and I felt that even when we started, which was in 95, where people wanted to engage, they wanted to show up, they wanted to form community. And when we did something, it felt significant, as opposed to now, you sort of feel like you're screaming into the... Void, right. you know, and is anybody right. out There's there? Like, like, right, right. You know? is, you, you, it,
1: it, the connection is not necessarily there. It's interesting that you should say news because we we get asked all the time where we got the right where we got man bites dog, but it actually comes from a journalism phrase that if um uh, uh if a dog bites a man, who cares? But if man bites dog, that's news. And um, so I, I I think there was something more tactile. I know. I sound like an old man saying this, but there was something about the contact. There was something about the energy. There was something about going to downtown Durham, you know, dangerous downtown Durham, you know, and, uh, you know, which you wouldn't think twice of now. I mean, there are people on the streets all the time. We're such a different community than we were then. But it was interesting to be down there and be a part of that Of creating a a different kind of energy. Right.
0: You spoke earlier about approaching this initial season with a certain kind of naivete. So when you reflect back on that, what's one thing or things that you wish that you had known when you started?
2: We didn't know how hard it was going to be. So I don't know if that would have been a good thing or a bad thing to know ahead of time. It might have totally discouraged us. But we also didn't know how much fun it was going to be. Uh, It was exciting when we did it, but it was exciting in the sense of nervous and, oh God, is this going to work? We've we've committed hundreds of dollars to this.
3: Right. (laughs) Right.
2: (laughs) And had no idea what the reaction was going to be. So that was gratifying. And that's the fun of it is when you can share it. So the balance of that was the kind of thing that had we known it, I don't know how that would have affected us, but it would have kind of been nice to know that. Uh, The other lesson is, uh, if you're going under the radar with city inspection, be sure you stay under the radar. That's
1: right. (laughs) It was also fun for us to do together. Ed brought me out at 30 years old. And so I was having to sort of learn a whole new way of who I was, and in relationship to him as well. He took gay lessons. So I took I took gay lessons, and um, nobody was surprised. But making theater together. Right. A model that I was really familiar with that had to do with collaboration, that had to do with balance, that had to do with uh, shared stories. I think that that helped us also solidify who we were with mm-hmm. each other and that this was something that best friends could do uh, with one another.
0: How did you manage this as partners, both personally and as business partners essentially over this time period this i've seen this not work for many people yet it seemed to work very well for you what magic did you employ
1: i think it helped that we were not actors and 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 i don't mean and i love actors i i love i worship actors i truly truly do but i think it helped that we were not dealing with that particular egos we were dealing with our own egos in different ways, but not that particular ego. And also uh, that we had two bathrooms. Uh, It would not, it never would have worked without two bathrooms. He means in our home. Right.
2: (laughs) We sometimes barely had one bathroom.
1: Yeah, we we we, we was like camping when we were doing theater because (laughs) we sort of had to make it up as we went
2: along. In 92 after our first season, eighty-seven, eighty-eight, we were several years moving from space to space, sort of doing shows as we could find space to accommodate. But in ninety-two, we rented a space in at the corner in a little strip shopping center at the corner of Club Boulevard and Roxborough. Yes,
0: I saw a show there,
2: and uh, a couple of shows that there. was. Very interesting experience. It was very limited as a space in terms of air conditioning, in terms of height of the roof, in terms of people finding it, in terms of its size, uh, in terms of what you could actually stage there. So it had limitations, but those are interesting challenges artistically. And it gave us a base for three and a half years to make theater in our own space, Mm -hmm. which we liked. But we ended up having to leave that space. In 95.
1: Okay. It was a, one of the interesting things about the space and I like to say anecdotally is that we, we uh, when we went to New York, we played the uh, Susan uh, Shiva Theater, which has the subway right underneath it. So no matter what performance you're watching, the subway goes by. Kind of like the fruit is right, now with right. the train. <laughs>
0: the train will be appearing. In- <laughs>
1: But we had the Word of Faith Church next door to us uh, that did um, major, major electronic organ. They had uh, good
2: sound system.
1: A great sound system on Wednesdays. So any Wednesday night performance, audiences grew to know that they were actually seeing two performances, that they were watching a performance and they were listening to another performance next door because the walls were very thin.
0: Yes. (laughs) So when did, you, when did you buy that place on Foster Street?
2: Well, when we gave up the space on club in uh, Roxborough because the challenges it had, we'd sort of explored all the interesting creative ways to deal with the limitations <laughs> of the space. And we just felt like we needed to move on from that. We became vagabond again for a couple of years, but we were getting along in years and realized... Okay, this isn't a long-term solution because we're really tired of schlepping those platforms and those lighting instruments. So we were able to pull off some interesting productions and interesting spaces, but just the effort required to find those spaces to negotiate, you know, how much time are we going to have in there? Oh, we have to totally strike the set for one day in the middle of the run. Is that going to be doable? all of that kind of thing, quickly we realized, okay, this is not going to work. We are going to need a more permanent space, but a better one than the last time. So we started doing what we'd done back in 87 when we were first looking for a place to do 70 scenes of Halloween, which we had already started rehearsing but had no space yet for, which is we started wandering randomly around downtown Durham and kept whining to ourselves all these empty spaces why isn't somebody smart enough to let us in there and nobody really was and we had kind of a epiphany at some point i don't know if somebody said it to us or we the light suddenly dawned is we're looking for a space to rent if only there was some kind of professional who specialized in helping you do that (laughs) And so we went, oh, a realtor.
0: Right. <laughs> well, who could that be? <laughs> uh,
2: so we asked around. Somebody recommended this woman from Raleigh, Betsy Dupree, who we met, who was this great southern woman. She had a great perm hairstyle. She had like this striking red dress, I remember. And she had these high heels. And we met with her. And she had a, a big Pickup, or I can't remember if it was an SUV or a big pickup truck, but it was a power vehicle for a realtor. And so we met with her over lunch and she said, Okay, let me look for you. There's a lot of spaces in Durham. Tell me what you need. And we said, We need about this much square footage. We need to have support space so we have bathrooms so the city doesn't close us down again. We would like a high ceiling space. We would like a space where there's not a lot of columns, support columns and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. And she said, let me look. And we said, good luck, we've been looking for years. Less than a week later, we (laughs) got a call from her and said, meet me at the corner of Foster and Gear outside King Sandwich Shop and I'll show you the space there. Mm -hmm. And we met her and the space she showed us was the 703 Foster Street building, which at that time was a printing company which was in the process of trying to move out to Research Triangle Park and had the space up for rent. So she showed us the space. We said, this is really interesting. It's a barrel roof, airplane hangar type roof, so there was no internal support. It was 6,500 square feet, which for us was like Radio City Music Hall. Yeah, huge. So we had plenty of room up front to have support space, a lobby, office, bathrooms, possibly a green room, And then that still left like 4,000 square feet in the back for staging, for shop, for stage manager booth, that kind of thing. So we really liked it. And we said, how much do they want? And she said, well, they want this much for rent, but they also would also just as well sell it. So you should buy it. And we laughed. Uh, we Neither of us had ever bought We know, hadn't bought know, a home. Property. We, I mean, we'd bought nothing. <laughs> we um, didn't own our cars. Yeah. <laughs> and she said, listen, here are the numbers. This is what you would be paying for rent over the years. And as soon as, you know... This is a great area. Eventually, it's going to take off. This was in nineteen ninety seven mm-hmm. that she was building
1: this. <laughs> we said,
0: yeah, <laughs> um, Betsy knew she and she
2: said, and when it takes <laughs> off, if you're renting this space, your rent's going to go up, and sooner or later, you're not going to be able to afford it. <laughs> also, you won't have any equity in the building if you buy the space. If the property takes off. You know you will have some equity in that if it even if it doesn't take off you will have a space that nobody is going to tell you what you can and can't do in it and we said well that makes sense but we have no money <laughs> and she said do you have an audience and we said yeah and our strategy always had been baby steps had been like if you're trying to cross a stream and there's little stepping stones in there you don't try to jump to the furthest rock you go to the one closest uh. and then very carefully watching your footing so you don't fall in make your way across so the smallest step possible to accomplish the goal was generally the strategy and that protected us against making stupid decisions that we couldn't take back. This was a decision where there was really no going back. The plan, which we worked out with her was to go to our supporters and say, we found this building. This is how much it's going to cost. This is how much we have to come up with for a down payment and upfitting of the space. You know, you've been following us for 10 years if you share this vision, you know, can you come in and support us? And that was the plan. what we did to start that was we put together a list of 10 or 15 people who had the wherewithal to write larger than normal checks.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And we went personally to each of them and said, here's this space we can show you to you if you want. This is what we'd like to do. But before we launch a public campaign to raise money for it, we want to be sure that the support is out there. So we've set a goal of, I think it was like $18,000. If we can raise that from you and the other people we're asking by this time limit, which was like a month or two, then we're going to go ahead with a public campaign to raise the money for it and bless them, the donors. And I'm not going to try to do the whole list because I would leave somebody out, but just I remember the first one who said, oh, absolutely, it was Reynolds Price oh. because he loved our production of The Mystery of Irma Vep.
0: I saw that. I remember that. <laughs> and he said, yes. I will
2: give you money, but and I'm not going to tell you what to do, but I sincerely hope that you remount that again mm-hmm. because we'd already done it twice at the right. old space. Right. So we said no promises, but I think we still have all the costumes (laughs) and we have the um, we have the set in storage. So we were able to raise that 17 or 18 thousand dollars. We made this announcement to our supporters and said, this is the goal. This is the time we're going to try to do this. And please join us. And I think we end up having to raise about 50 some thousand dollars Mm. to get that and parallel to that we were going to banks and trying to explain them what a non-profit was right it was like well wait you're a non so how can you pay a mortgage if you don't make any <laughs> so is
0: the money coming like are you, <laughs> you don't make doing... any money right, no right. a nonprofit
2: it means a not-for-profit for... oh, God. <laughs> and so we were hitting a brick wall there and i don't remember it may have been margaret demont at the arts council Durham arts council somebody said to us, you should go talk to self-help credit union. And they were specializing in small grants to like small business owners and people who were doing startups in the communities that were not getting the access to bank loans and stuff like that. And they were not in the business of doing this kind of loan, but with internally, I don't know what the discussion was, but I think, People within that were saying, if we support the arts taking place in downtown Durham, that's good for our goals because we want there to be commercial stuff going on, and this is somebody who has values that we share, Mm -hmm. and this is a doable thing. And so we were able to get the loan from them. And
1: we had a little bit of a track record at that point. We could say, this is who we are identity wise. This is what we've done with no resources over the last 10 years. This is what we'd like to do. And we didn't really know what that, what we'd like to do was exactly going to be, but we knew that this space felt like the right sizes, I arrogantly told the board that I wouldn't direct into the space until they got rid of the drop ceiling in the performance area, which, as you well know, never happened <laughs> i think I think it has happened now that the new owners have taken over um, but, but there was a sort of a vision beyond that. Like if we had had, if, if, if I had won the lottery,
3: right.
1: you know, we would have taken that ceiling out. That would have been a theater with a 12, 14 foot high ceiling, curved ceiling. I mean, it could, it could, it was a beautiful space for all of us who worked there, but it could have been something even more remarkable, I think, architecturally. Mm -hmm. And I actually think that the, this is kind of getting ahead of ourselves, but the the current owners, one of the things that we were, we really liked about the people that we sold the building to is that they wanted to preserve the building. They weren't going to tear it down and put a high rise there. They wanted to preserve it. And in fact, to the point where, where they've even left sort of remnants of man bites dog sort of hanging around we don't know how long that'll mm-hmm. that'll be there but you can still sort of recognize that the building
2: used to be ours especially if you're someone who'd spent some time there right our first year or two in the building we got a grant a business improvement grant from Durham Arts Council or from the city I think I can't remember one of the two and commissioned Chapel Hill mural artist Michael Brown to do a mural on the side of the building Uh, where the loading dock is. We talked to him about what that design would be. We referenced Magritte,
3: Mm -hmm. the
2: artist Magritte, in the surrealism of it. But the idea we wanted to convey was that the theater was reflecting the community it was in. So what he came up with, with us sort of giving input, was based on uh, the kingdom of light, the realm of light, the Magritte where there's a a street scene where there's a street lamp and it's nighttime, but you can see the sky overhead and it's full daylight. This sort of followed that. And it had like windows on silhouetted buildings that became more abstract as they went higher.
1: We're excited about the fact that so far in the renovation, they have actually left the mural and actually they've put windows and doors in amongst the mural. So, I personally think that visually, aesthetically, it's really cool looking because it's the real windows and doors, but it's also the windows and doors reflecting the skyline, which is right behind us. So going back to that, I'm just saying that I think the building has gone further to reaching its full potential because they've had the money to be able to do it right. Something that we would never have We just never could get over the hump of, you know, daily survival, daily fixing the hole that was in the roof right now and, uh, you know,
2: moving on.
3: Mm
2: -hmm. So long story shorter, we were able to come up with the down payment money for it. We were able to get the loan. We were able to buy the building. The previous owners had difficulties in terms of the building they were hoping to build and move into in Research Triangle Park. So suddenly our occupancy of the building had to be delayed for many months. We completed the purchase in 97, but really weren't able to get into the building and start doing the work we needed to do until, I guess, spring of 98. And so we started prepping from there to launch our first season in the space was 98,
0: 99. Owning a thing like that sounds like a dream come true in many ways. And I think for many of us, it is. But there are also a series, like when you own your own home, there are a series of responsibilities that come along with owning a space and having to care for the space. How would you describe some of the challenges that came along with having this amazing building but being in charge of this amazing building? Uh, The
2: thing about a space like this, and this is advice we got from the New Realities Consultants Mm -hmm. that the North Carolina Arts Council made available to artists in the 80s and 90s, we had had that discussion about having a space and what they reminded us was that when you own a space or you're renting a space for your art, no matter what your priorities are in creating that art and how you want to create it and how you want to interact with it, it's never going to be the first priority because your first priority has to be this space that suddenly becomes the first thing in line for your resources, your financial resources, your time resources, mm-hmm. your personal resources. So the thing
1: you were mentioning, the pros are this incredible sense that I can I can schedule this space any way I want to. And and that worked to our advantage. Mm-hmm. We had to put together a season, both hands was available mm-hmm. in November, so let's plug them in there and then I could do the one I want to direct here. So we had control over that year's worth of of space and that is intoxicating. Yeah. But as Ed has said, it also comes with having to feed it. And there has always been about our work uh, something that that we wanted to make accessible. That so we we didn't go. I mean, people need to think that when you pay, you know, when you pay three hundred dollars for a Broadway ticket, you're paying for all that stuff mm. up there, you know. And uh, we tried to keep tickets under twenty dollars for long. Long, long, long time. That was not covering the cost of making the thing. Uh, it was making it enticing to bring people in for the conversation.
3: Right.
1: So there's a there's a give and take about if you have to raise your ticket prices, do you then lose accessibility for people who can't afford that, and does theater then become this elite thing? Or is there a way to keep it accessible to everyone so that the conversation continues with a degree of diversity okay. and a degree of actually the reflection of that society that you're a part of?
0: Mm-hmm. So I could go on for many minutes about how important Man Bites Dog Theater was to me personally and artistically, and I'm sure you've heard this from many people in our community I don't want to gloss over those intervening years, but I want to make sure that we have time to talk about the newest iteration of Man Bites Dog Theater. So I want to talk about the closing of the Foster Street space and what it was like to say goodbye to that building that you had inhabited, that we had all inhabited for so many years.
1: It was hard. Um it was hard i think i think we had several different reactions i had to after the final performance sort of not go back in the building for a while but i watched it as if i were watching you know something of with, of great interest i watched it from the street i watched it every time i went to gear street for dinner i was there but i couldn't be there michael especially michael hayes our board director for all these years just got in there and we knew we wanted to give everything to groups that could use all the platforms and the lights and the hammers and, Everything. So Michael got in there and divvied it all up and had people come pick it up and had work days where people emptied it out. I mean, when you live in some place for 20 years, when you live in a theater for 20 years, you have stuff from every company that's ever been there has mm-hmm. left something behind. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so all that's got to be taken out. Is it garbage? Is it not? Could somebody else use it? So, Michael and Ed went, in, Ed went in and did the office steady every day. Michael went in and did this astounding feat of emptying out
2: the space, giving away stuff, throwing away stuff, recycling stuff. There was a lot of stuff. <laughs> and Michael
1: was in the space having sent the last load out, and the theater was entirely empty. And there was one balloon left from Wakey Wakey that (laughs) had been floating around the space and through all of that, all of that in and out and in and out and in and out over three weeks had never gotten thrown away or anything. And so Ed did a little little film of of Michael and the balloon alone in the space. Mm -hmm. And so that was our final moment was just really sort of saying, wow, that was really something terrific that we did. And really given ourselves, I mean, patting ourselves on the back, I feel great a great, great sense of pride in what happened. I think there was no plan, there was no blueprint, and to imply that there was would would be a wrong thing. But what it did become and what it will continue to be, we hope, was quite remarkable. And I feel very, very privileged to have been a part of it.
2: The thing about it to me was that it Mostly unconsciously, it followed a form, The History of the Theater, where that story itself had a beginning, middle, and end. And as we got closer to the end, we realized we wanted a satisfying ending to what was a 31-year performance. Hmm. We're not much about improv, but this felt like a theater that had been improvised, but really needed to be honored with treating it with respect at the end as to how that was going to happen. So when we started planning for what's the next phase, this is great, but it's not something we're going to be able to maintain. We don't have the resources financially to improve the building like it needs to be. We're both getting well along in years and can't continue at this pace forever. Trying to pass the building on as the legacy seemed counterproductive because it would come with major, major repairs that would need to be done by whoever took it over. And there was no one in the area that really had that resource to do as a theater. It would require a major rethinking of the budget because we had been staffing with just myself for years and years at a very basic amount of money to ramp that up to what it needed to be seem prohibitive so the idea of we need a new thing that this can become and still honor the audiences and honor the artists that have participated in this over the years what's the best way to give back
0: so let's talk about that new thing with the closing and the selling of the foster street location man bites dog has transitioned into serving as a funding and support agency for theater companies and artists in the triangle region Recently, you announced the first Man Bites Dog Theater Fund grants, which include 25 project grants totaling over $38,000 to support local theater artists and companies during their 2019-20 seasons. So, first of all, congratulations on this transition and your first round of granting Ed, what is it like to be on the other side of the table, financially speaking? I know that you were a major grant writer for many years. How does it feel to be a grantor?
2: Once we decided with the board that this was the way we were going to go, one of the first things I started doing was to say to myself, okay, if we're going to take the assets from the sale of the building, which were in the high hundreds of thousands of dollars, is what we ended up with after paying off all our bills paying off all our loans. Just to jump back for a second, the the mortgage that we'd worked so long to get from self-help, we'd refinance once or twice over the years. But we were within like a little over a year of totally paying it off. And <laughs> oh, my wow. one disappointment is we didn't quite <clears throat> get there before we closed the building. It would have been fun to have a ceremony at the end of a show <laughs> or something. But the idea of taking those resources and figuring out a way to become a support agency for triangle theater, for the community that had supported us for so many years and to encourage more theater, encourage theater artists that felt really right to me and it, and to Jeff as well. And the board was very much on board with it and worked tirelessly to help us make that happen. We got to the point of, where we knew we were gonna go ahead with it. We had invaluable help from Cheryl Shambly who helped us figure out the best way to tell people. Mm. Because this is something that for some people is was very distressing, the idea, this is going away, it's the end of theater as we know it. What can possibly recover from this? And so part of the messaging had to be, this is the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. And part of the messaging had to be, we're telling you now, but this isn't going to happen. We're going to go through a whole other season. So we have some time to get used to this. And we have a way to celebrate for a year that legacy in history. And the best way to celebrate is to do the best theater we can. So we got to the point where we closed down. We spent the time from June of 2018 until this spring figuring out how to give away money to theater artists. And what we came up with was, let's start simply at a reasonable level and let's fund specifically theater projects. That's not to say we're going to always limit ourselves to that. You know, the amounts may change. We may open up other project means that somebody could apply for. But this time specifically, we wanted to fund things that would go up before an audience that people could see that would take place during 2019,
0: 2020
2: that people could see or hear. Right.
0: Yes. (laughs) Exactly.
2: So (laughs) uh, as somebody who, Was not great at doing grants, but learned how to get by with the grants that I did. One of the things that always annoyed the hell out of me was how complicated, how long, how time-consuming, how much it was one of those things that just turned your avoidance behavior to a level. And I found myself always finishing the grant, like, within a day or two of it being due. Right. Hours, I rem- so hours. I can remember driving over to Raleigh. This was before the internet with my finished grant proposal, trying to get there before 5 PM because if it wasn't there by then, I was sure the world would end. Right. They would probably have said, just leave it
3: at the door. Right. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so my goal in doing it was let me create a grant application that I would actually not get, overly annoyed at let me keep it as simple as i can get the absolute minimum of information we need to do it Mm. if we can get it down to a page or so where there are no thousand word essays on what theater means to me or you know what the purpose of your project is you may not know you may be creating it now so how can you do that so what we came up with was You know, who are you? We're the basic guidelines for the grant proposal. Who are you? Basically, tell us what your experience has been in doing theater. What kind of things have you done in the past? You know, give us a brief history of your shows. What's this project? Tell us why you're doing it, but without doing an essay. Just give us a brief description of it and tell us a little bit about, you know, who do you think wants to see it? But again, without... You've got fifteen hundred words to do that. Right. So please go insane for the next <laughs> days while you try to figure out what we want to hear. Okay. And then how are you going to pay for it? So the restriction was that we would give grants between five hundred and twenty five hundred dollars, but your grant amount could not be more than twenty five percent of your total budget for the project. That's sort of said this is a significant amount of money for a project and it may be just the thing you need to get you just enough funding to get it done. But never forget that we may not always be here or you may not be able to always get a grant from us. So if you're new at this, this is a very easy grant for a first timer to do, but never forget that you have to be looking at multiple ways to pay for this mm. because we're not gonna be the thing that comes in and says, we're gonna totally underwrite this. Right. So we got it as simple as we could. We ran it by the board, we ran it by other people, and we finally went live with it back in the spring and people were very responsive to it. We weren't sure if we were gonna get half dozen applications or a couple of hundred applications. Right we thought the latter was very unlikely we thought the former was probably unlikely and we ended up with about 25 to 30 applications we did a brief screening where there were some that didn't qualify and we ended up with 25 grants applications for a really interesting range of projects.
1: And those were vetted by a by a panel, which I'm also very, very proud of. We don't reveal the names of the panelists, obviously, but it was a really great, diverse panel of people who were both interested in theater, experts at theater, and they really, really spent time talking about each proposal mm-hmm. and talking about the merits. And, and so the whole process has felt really very, very popular. Positive to me and we're we're very excited to be uh, mailing those checks out this week
2: mm-hmm. as we speak we sent out contracts last week to the 25 recipients it's just a short three-page contract we've gotten back over half of those at this point and I'm just vetting them like one or two forgot to sign their w-9 forms, right. stuff like that later today I'm gonna be writing checks for the first, I think, first dozen at least, of those who've gotten all the information in correct and their checks will go out this week. So that was the other thing in terms of designing this granting process was we weren't gonna get back to people and say, yes, you've got a grant and you'll get a check sometime between now and the end of the fiscal year that the grant is for. Right. Uh, and you and you may get it in multiple payments. So you won't know when the money is going to come. It may come well after you've done your project. We wanted to avoid that.
1: Right. So. so the turnaround's been under two months,
2: right? Uh, it was in June was the closing date for it. So it's a little over two months. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, we had promised people we would let them know before the end of August whether they'd gotten the grants and that we would get the Checks to them within ten days of them getting the contract back to us, and,
0: and for sh- most people, this is the the beginning of their season. Yeah. So, right. so this the timing is perfect, right? It's perfect. And
2: the project specifically had to begin no earlier than September.
0: I'm curious about the longer term effects that you hope that this theater fund has on the theater community.
2: That's something that's still evolving right now we have a big chunk of money in our universe sitting in a fund that's earning money at the Triangle Community Foundation for us so that's what we draw on to write the checks to the people we're giving grants to that's a finite amount of money it's is drawing you know a reasonably good rate of interest because it's in their enormous fund mm-hmm. as part of that pool but it's finite so were we to just keep doing what we're doing, we have a very small annual operations budget, and we're trying to give away grant checks every year, sooner or later that would run out. So one of the questions that we're in the process of figuring out an answer to, is this something that's going to go X number of years until we give away all the money and then gracefully close and say that was nice and that this is the end? Or is it something that could maintain indefinitely Mm. in terms of fundraising for the fund itself, of partnering with other granting agencies, of finding sponsor donors who would be interested in helping fund? And I think this first year, once we've got a track record, that makes it possible to go to people like that and say, this is what we've done so far. We'd like to continue this. Is this something that you would like to come in with us and, and help with?
0: Well, it sounds like it's fuel. You're you're fueling the the theater economy.
2: And regardless of how it turns out, I feel like putting energy, money as energy, into the theater community cannot help but be beneficial for our basic goal, which is more theater. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree.
1: Ed and I have committed to the near future. To staying with this because we it's still an extension. It's still man by stag theater company I'm still working as an artist. There's a great excitement about being involved in something that's moving forward so Mm -hmm. it doesn't feel like it's a Downhill thing it feels like it's a it's a sort of a surge but going back to your question in terms of the individuals I mean I think That many, many, many times during our history, uh, sometimes we felt like $500 meant the difference between whether we could do something or not. Mm. And if we can do that to 25 different projects, then those 25 different projects might live, and those 25 different projects will, will be seen by an audience. And if we can keep doing that for... I don't know how many years we can keep doing that, then then there are going to be the companies that emerge that find the building in the part of Durham that no one's rented yet and begins to name it as the space where their community can be formed. Mm-hmm. And, and I want to say something really quick because I feel like Man gets so wrapped up with Ed and Jeff all the time, identity-wise. But I just want to say that we could never have done any of the things that we have done without the astounding community of artists and supporters and the, the diverse audience that came out, you have to remember that they, they were coming out to plays that no one had ever heard of before, playwrights that no one had ever heard of before. So they were taking on faith because it was that man bites dog. It might be interesting. Mm-hmm. And that community of people is I think what all of this has been about and it continues to be about not only us contributing what we can to building community, but for these other communities to begin to start on their own and to begin to find out how they are going to make it in. Let's face it. It's a, it's a rough and tumble world mm. in many, many different ways, but art pushes through to say what needs to be said, I think, politically and socially. And I think that it can be the most important antidote to everything that's going on.
2: Mm. Not only were we looking at trying to make this as easy as possible for the grant recipients, but in a way, we're sort of putting ourselves out there as a model for other funding agencies to say that we are a funding agency that's prioritizing the artist this is not about large legacy facilities and organizations to keep that because otherwise if that was our value, we would have plowed all our money into a building and created a theater space that would have helped some people and others not so much. But the idea that if you are supporting the arts, the first thing you have to be thinking of is supporting the artist because everything beyond that is is optional. We know that we can do theater in a lovely well-appointed facility. We also know that we can do it on the cheap, thrown together in a month in a meeting room at the Durham Arts Council with a play, another play about AIDS, another play based on the work of Larry Kramer. Mm-hmm. We did that and that ended up going to the public theater in New York in 1990. So you never know. So uh, If somebody had looked at us and said, we're not gonna fund you, you're like doing plays in meeting rooms, you're not, you know, we need to be funding something that's more permanent. We don't care that much about permanent. A lot of theater artists and theater companies and theater work is here and then it's gone. Jeff likes to say ephemeral, that's a few too many syllables for me, but that's essentially right, is that it's worth funding something, even if it's the only place somebody is going to do. That's a value to them for having done it. It's a value to the audiences that got to see it. It's a value to other people who've seen it and said, oh, I can do better than that. Or I love that. I'm going to try to do something as close to To being that good as I can. Or that's what I'm going to
1: donate my money to. I'm not talking necessarily, I mean, even cause-wise. I mean, a play can prompt someone to say, okay, returning Vietnam vets. We did a play called Strange Snow back a ways in returning Vietnam vets. We were able to bring in the groups and the organizations that support them. It was introducing communities to each other. Mm. And I think people can do that in, you know, whatever size the space is. People need to be responsible to support the art that they value. So if you're a person that goes to the theater or you go see dance, you go see music, then figure, do the math. You know, are is your ticket really paying for what you're seeing in front of you? And if not, and you can afford to give an extra five bucks today, then that's what keeps us alive. So support the art that you value, and that way we we stay connected to it, and it becomes valuable. I would love to have a nickel every time someone used Man Bites Dog as an example of the kind of diverse art scene that there is in Durham. Every realtor that ever sold one of those buildings downtown uh, probably used it as an example of a funky art scene somewhere.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So I'm just saying that there's got to be value in that, and everybody's got to take responsibility for it.
0: Is there anything else that you would like to touch on before we wrap up?
1: There, there, there's an Agnes DeMille quote that I love, which <laughs> is, uh, we may be wrong but we take leap after leap in the dark. And I love it because I think it's, an, it's eloquent in a way that uh, describes what we did, which was just to take a leap. But it's also inspirational to say to you that if you're thinking about that one-woman show or you're wanting to get a group together to read a script on a Sunday night, take the leap Because until you take the leap, you can't take those smaller step-by-steps that were going to potentially lead you somewhere. And I've taught for over 40 years now, and some of my absolutely most incredible students I've watched take little steps in a lot of different directions and and grow to become something that they never imagined themselves to have become. So I don't think that there's a blueprint or a plan or a how to do it. There's just taking that first step. There's just taking the leap.
0: That is how to do it, right? Right, I think so. <laughs> well, thank you so much for all the leaps that you have made and continue to It has been a joy to have this conversation with you today. And I'm very excited to experience what you will be doing next. And thank you so much for being in our community.
2: Thank you. Thanks, Tamara. More
0: theater. More theater. (laughs) Hey, friends. I'm excited to announce that our second full-length audio drama is in development. The New Colossus is an original adaptation of Anton Chekhov's classic play, The Seagull. And it's gonna be amazing! We have a cast, we have a team, we have a script and recording days, and we are rolling! I'm asking you to support indie audio drama and artists. Please support the creation and production of this new work by becoming a patron of Artist Soapbox at patreon.com slash artistsoapbox. Patrons at the $3 a month level and up will also receive the inside scoop on our creative process, including interviews, secret documents, and more. That link again is patreon.com slash artistsoapbox, and I'll include it in the show notes. Your support makes a huge difference. Artist Soapbox has created nearly 100 hours of free content made available to listeners around the world. Please help us continue to make more. Thanks.